Welcome to Mothers Matter. This is a podcast which values mothers, gives mothers a voice and celebrates the essential role mothers play in their children's lives and often, when they get a minute, in society as a whole. My guest is Erica Commissar. She is a New York-based psychoanalyst, a parent coach, and an author of a book which I think is absolutely brilliant, and not just because I agree with all of it. It is called Being There, Why Prioritising Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. It's a, it's a fantastic book, and I can't recommend it enough. So it's called Being There, Why Prioritising Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. I was really keen to talk to Erica because she has a a psychoanalytical background. She understands an awful lot of what's going on in babies and children's and adult brains. And also she is prepared to speak up for the value of mothers, uh, particularly in those first three years in their children's lives. Uh, Because it's my podcast, I also wanted to ask her about teenagers, which is a subject very close to my heart, and also about the big issue of maternal guilt. I don't think there are any mothers which haven't felt at some point guilty. I have, I know I have, at some point. But it's often used, guilt is often used as a reason not to discuss the things that might make us feel guilty. So uh, I was really keen to talk to her about guilt because it's something I've heard her speak on before. So I hope you'll really enjoy this podcast and uh, feel free to go and buy her book. Well, thank you very much for meeting with me today, Erica. And I'm really looking forward to the answers to all these questions I have (laughs) that I I believe you will have uh, for me. The first thing I'd really like you to talk about is the role of mothers in their children's lives uh, when they're babies and then as they grow up. What difference does it make to a child having a mother around? So thank you for having me today, Claire, um, to talk about such an important topic as mothers and that mothers matter. Um, So mothers matter for a number of reasons. Mothers are um, basically the emotional regulators for children, meaning children are born without the capacity to regulate their emotions. And to regulate one's emotions is means not having your emotions go too high or too low. And, um, And so mothers basically are the regulators from the outside. And children don't internalize the ability to control or regulate their impulses or their emotions until about the age of six. Um, So a mother's presence from moment to moment in terms of regulating that emotion is really critical. They also buffer children from stress. So the world is a very stressful place to a newborn. um, And in fact, we're born much more neurologically fragile than, than we've even known before. So neuroscience now Um, And all the advancement in neuroscience actually shows us how fragile the brain is of of a neonate. And and so mothers actually physically and emotionally buffer children from stress um, by carrying them close to their bodies. They regulate stress by um, just 
protecting them. And, and without that protection, they don't actually internalize the ability to be resilient to stress in the future. So meaning the capacity to withstand stress and cope with it in the future is based on how well they're buffered in the very beginning. Um, so another really critical function. They also, uh, mothers also provide empathy for children. It's through that empathy that children learn things like empathy and how to read other people's social cues and basically how to interact uh, and be intimate with others. Um, so these are all really critical functions that mothers serve for babies in the first, particularly in the first thousand days. And how is it that mothers are having that effect? What is it that is going on sort of physiologically or neurologically with the, with the children and the babies? Well, uh, mothers and babies produce something called oxytocin. Um, it's, a, it's a nurturing hormone and it's tossed between the two, you'd say, uh, sort of passed around like a ball between mothers and babies. Um, when mothers nurture uh, their young, um, babies then produce more oxytocin. And it's, it's not only promotes uh, connection and attachment, which is so important for emotional security, but it also promotes um, a sense of well-being, physical and emotional well-being in children. Um, and it allows them to attach to others in the future. So there's the oxytocin component. There's also what we call the right brain development. So what we can see on brain scans now is that um, the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system of a baby, which is what we call the right hemisphere of the brain, uh, which is the social emotional development part of the brain, is growing at an enormous rate in the first three years. And that mothers are a critical part of that development and that babies who are not nurtured um, in the first three years, um, their brains actually develop differently than babies who are um, kind of nurtured. So, so we can see how the right brain development, which contributes to all these things, resilience to stress, emotional regulation, empathy, the ability to read social cues, it all lives in the right brain. Um, and, you know, and then there's also the argument that you know, we focus too much in our cultures today, in our modern cultures, on the left brain development which is cognitive development and not nearly enough on right brain development. And what, what impact is there when you're saying the brain develops differently if uh, the baby isn't close to the mother or receiving nurturing from the mother? What impact might that have uh, in later life? Well, first of all, in terms of the brain development itself, um, the, the right brain either is stimulated, uh, meaning if you look on a brain scan, the right brain actually um, of a baby who's been nurtured and is, is healthily attached, um, kind of looks like Christmas lights. Um, <laughs> and a baby who is, um, you know, we, we'd say neglected or doesn't have as much of that kind of moment-to-moment um, -moment emotional regulation from their mothers and stress, stress buffering, uh, their, their brains will actually show less electrical activity and a, a less blood flow. Um, in addition, there's a small part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the stress regulation part of the brain. And it's supposed to remain very quiet because it's not meant to be activated until much later because we're not meant to be exposed to much stress. Um, if that part of the brain is activated too early, meaning if a baby is exposed too early to stress, that part of the brain enlarges. Um, and if that part of the brain enlarges, then to answer your question later in life, um, it gets big like a balloon. Think about a balloon that's over, um, 
overfilled and then eventually pops. So it shrivels up and it ceases to function in the way that it's meant to function. So if it's turned on too early, um, it will basically burn out and, and not be useful in later life. And for that stress-regulating part of the brain to be useful is to be able to cope with stress later on. So you'll see in children who haven't received that kind of nurturing in the first three years that they don't have the capacity to deal with stress. Um, they're more likely to break down because of uh, environmental stress um, and they can't regulate their emotions. So they'll, they'll, they're, they're more prone to things like depression and anxiety and other kinds of mental disorders. Uh, and, and would you say, how long does that affect of the mother, ha um, how long is it relevant for, for a child? You know, how long do they benefit from having a mother around in terms of age? Ages? Well, you know, it's in, in nutritional work, um, they talk about uh, stunting if you don't get enough nutrition in the first thousand days. So we sort of adopted that term, the first thousand days, because it's the first three years. So in the first three years, a baby's brain, as I said, is growing enormously. And by the end of that three-year period, the brain is almost completely the size that it will be as an adult. So the right brain is 85% cooked, we say, by the end of three years. So you can see how critical that first three years is. That isn't to say that the rest isn't critical, too. So, again, my book is about being there in the first three years and how critical that is. But the truth is that a mother's presence as much as possible, and what I say is more is more. The more a mother can be physically and emotionally present in their child's life throughout their child's, you know, dependent years, the better off that child will be emotionally because even when um, everything goes well and they've internalized you uh, and the ability to regulate emotion and to cope with stress, they're still going to have moments of vulnerability. And when they need to what we call emotionally refuel and touch base with you, what Margaret Mahler, a very famous psychoanalyst, called rapprochement, sort of going back and forth between you and the world. Um, and if you're not there, for the most part, um, then they have no place to refuel, like a car that runs out of gas and has no pumping station kind of thing. So is it about um, the, the children need you less on a, a sort of ongoing moment-by-moment -moment basis as they right. get older, but right. you need to be available for when right. they do need you <laughs> right. for, for moments of crisis. Right. That can make a difference. So we think of it as intensity and degree. So in the first three years, there's a great intensity and degree of their need, meaning that moment-to-moment -moment process, because they haven't internalized the capacity to, to regulate their emotions, is really critical. After the three-year period, they can hold it for longer periods of time and they're practicing. They're practicing regulating their emotions on their own. They're spending more time away from you in school during the day, um, but they still need you. So, and, and, and I'm currently writing a book on adolescence, really basically talking about that. They need you, but they need you in a different way. And would you say then, if you've had, um, if they've had really good foundation up to three, ironically, they're almost better able to cope away from you. Uh, because they've learned how to regulate their emotions. Mm -hmm. But if they've not had that foundation, uh, then they will need you more right. later. So, so it flies in the face of what people are saying in terms of make the babies independent by getting them away from them well, as soon as I, possible. Well, I'll use a metaphor. Um, <laughs> my metaphor that I use is if you are sitting down at a, di at a dining table and um, you're served, as we used to say in America, um, nouvelle cuisine with just... <laughs> 
a few peas and a tiny bit of chicken and three grains of rice. <laughs> okay, you, you sit at that table until somebody feeds you more. Mm-hmm. And you will stay at that table until you get what you need. Um, and so, yes, it does fly in the face of what people are saying. Because if you get enough in the beginning, you're it's like a car, you know, filled up with a full tank where you're more capable of going out and, and exploring and practicing. And um, then if you're uh, undernourished in the beginning, where you're just going to stick to that table until somebody feeds you. And, you know, what we see in many mental disorders is a kind of regressed behavior where people never fully develop. They stay at that dining table waiting for someone and something unconsciously to nurture them. Does that, what you're saying there, reminds me of um, something I heard about addictions. And there's a part of the brain that uh, lights up. Uh, and it's something like an addiction that you that you need. Uh, what, what is it? It's the um, uh, the hormone that you get a uh, oh a Ser- sudden surge Ser- of serotonin and dopamine and, yes, and all of the neurotransmitters. Yeah. And you might look for it elsewhere yeah. if you haven't had it from your mother or when you've needed it. That's you right. You then look. At, could you say something about? I that? mean, yeah. addictions are basically um, fillers. They're substitutes for emotional security. So in other words, if you're not getting that meal, you're looking later for things to make you feel secure, to give you that sense of well-being. Remember the oxytocin. Um, And there really isn't anything that substitutes for that sense of well-being other than human contact. So which is why therapy actually has been shown to change the brain structure, the architecture of the brain not immediately. So it's not as if, you know, there are no quick fixes in life, which is another thing that society seems to demand. Um, But if you are patient and you give into the relationship and you attach to your therapist with talk therapy, not psychopharmacological drugs, but Mm. talk therapy, Mm. um, you, you can actually look at the brain in brain scans before you've started psychodynamic psychotherapy and after, and you can actually see the right brain Um, what I talked about, the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, um, picking up in development where it left off. So it it makes a real argument for talk therapy um, Mm -hmm. and not cognitive behavioral, but but in-depth attachment-oriented therapy um, to really to, to heal the brain. Yes. Well, I'd love to hear more about that, but I also want to hear about, um, we've talked about effect of mothers on children. What effect did children have on mothers? Hmm. Well, other than bringing us great joy and bringing <laughs> yes. us great frustration and love and stress and um, all of the above, I would say meaning, um, hmm. that um, there's many things in life that can give you meaning. Um, any kind of you know, creativity can give you meaning. So it isn't to say that children are the only thing to give people meaning. And and that's an important thing because we don't want to judge people who choose not to have children. And some people today choose not to have children either because they, um, you know, did not have a wonderful experience of their own mothers or being um, reared in their own families and have you know, have made the choice not to pursue having children and not getting treatment for themselves, but knowing that it's better for them not to. And I respect that. So there are many ways to derive meaning in life. Um, but certainly having children is one of the greatest ways that we know of, of having meaning. Um, and when we talk about legacy, we're not really talking about um, 
legacy of any great intellectual or uh, financial sort of things we're passing down, but really um, that the the love that we give our children is our legacy. So it's it's meaning, it's um, it's legacy, it's a sense of well being that you have as a mother when you nurture your ch- children well. Is there, is there um, a physiological effect apart from? when you're breastfeeding or right at the beginning mm-hmm. that you that happens when you have a child if you can't be with the child or if you are with the child mm. does the child have a physiological effect on the mother as well well remember the oxytocin so oxytocin is uh, also a pleasurable hormone so it makes us uh, feel a sense of well-being it makes us feel happy it makes us feel attached it makes us feel loved so um, when we nurture our children we produce oxytocin in our own brains it also produces oxytocin in the baby's brain which then again as i said is like a baseball passed back and forth um, produces more oxytocin in the mother's brain so more is more the more we nurture the more oxytocin the more the sense of well-being in the mother so what happens is often Um, today when mothers are separated from their babies for reasons they often can't control. I mean, we sometimes have to work um, or we have to be away from our babies. And when we are, we can feel a pull towards them. Um, And that is not, um, that guilt or that pull that we feel towards our babies is natural. It is biological. It is instinctual. And so it's not something that we want to sweep under the carpet or sweep away. We actually want to, to pay attention to that feeling. Um, and whether that feeling instructs us. So, you know, I talk a lot about guilt and I know you're going to ask me about, about guilt because that's a very common you question. Start, start talking about yeah. it now. Okay. Like, yeah, well, you know, please do. So, so what about guilt? Yeah. Um, and what does it have to do with biology? Guilt isn't just emotional. It has everything to do with biology, meaning our pull towards our babies is also has to do with our own brain development. If we were nurtured well, if we were given um, that kind of early, empathic, sensitive nurturing by our mothers, then we are drawn to giving it to our own children. And it is also a biological pull. So what I say is just like if you were to feel pain, physical pain, let's say you are playing football or you are running and you break your ankle or you strain your ankle, um, you feel pain. Now, a doctor would tell you, well, you're crazy to run on that thing, right? You don't want to stop and you want to look at it and you want to get it examined and you want to take care of it and you want to heal it, right? Um, For some reason, we don't associate guilt as a a signal feeling like physical pain, but it is. It's a signal feeling. So if we feel those feelings, we're meant to look at those feelings, we're meant to stop, we're meant to examine them, we're meant to heal them, we're meant to work through them, we're not meant to ignore them any more than you would continue to run on a broken ankle. Um, So guilt is a natural feeling. It's an important feeling. It means that our egos are functioning. It means that our conscience is working, the part of our egos um, that helps us to determine what is right or wrong for us. Um, So we really don't want to ignore it as society tells us to. We want to look at it. We want to examine that feeling. And then we often make different choices, even if those choices are nuanced and subtle, even if we can't stop working because we have to earn money to to support our families. We may choose to spend our time differently with our children when we come home in the evenings. We may choose to put our phones away or not look at the computer or not watch television, but be with our children. We might choose to keep our children up later so we can spend more time with them. 
I mean, there's many ways in which um, our own guilt can instruct us and help us to make better decisions. But if we just sweep it under the carpet and ignore it and say guilt is all bad, um, you know, it's a problem. So and when guilt is excessive, we call it neurotic or full of conflict. And that's a problem. But guilt itself, um, you know, again, everything is intensity and degree. Any feeling that is felt too intensely can be an issue, even too much excitement, hence emotional regulation. Babies even need their excitement regulated, mm-hmm. right? So not to go too high or too low. Um, but in general, mo- a moderate amount of guilt is not a bad thing. It's actually quite a good thing to pay attention to. So uh, in terms of um, the, uh, well, guilt itself, can you feel, is guilt always related to fault? Can you feel guilty about something that's not your fault and is guilt the right thing to feel (laughs) you know as you said if you can't help having to work because you're a single mother or you've got uh just you can't afford to survive on one income is guilt what you should feel when you're not with your child is that the right thing to feel or is it if you can't do anything about it it's it again i think it's more about intensity and degree rather than feeling it or not feeling it i mean um as a clinician when people can turn off a feeling that quickly we call them schizoid there's actually a diagnosis (laughs) for it so we don't want to be able to turn off a negative Mm -hmm. feeling we want to look at it we want to examine it um, and we basically want to neutralize it so what we say is that mothers serve another important function which I didn't talk about from a psychoanalytic perspective very famous psychoanalyst named Melanie Klein talked about how mothers take babies aggression And by loving babies and by being present for them, they neutralize the aggression and convert it back into love, right? Sort of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) They take take the aggression, they put it through the machine of mothering and loving the baby, and it turns back into love towards Mm -hmm. the mother. Um, and and in in fact, that function is served all the time all the time between mothers and babies. It's kind of a conversion um, of converting one feeling into another feeling. So in fact, what we really want to do with guilt is take guilt, examine it, think about it, talk about it. If you need to go talk to a therapist and talk about it, someone who can help um, neutralize the feeling. But that doesn't mean sweeping it under the carpet, right? If everything is intensity and degree, we still want to feel that pull towards our babies because Mm -hmm. that means that, one, we're attached and the baby's attached. And two, our conscience is working. So in general, we we do feel guilt when we feel um, something is wrong. We're separated, something's painful. Um, there's something we could be doing or should be doing that we're not doing um, or something we did do that we shouldn't do. So again, having a functioning um, ego is very important for health. So we don't want to really sweep it under the carpet, but we want to kind of convert it back into something good. And sometimes we need help to do that. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, looking from a religious point of view, that in um, many religions, guilt is accompanied by forgiveness. That's right. And you confess your sin and what you've done wrong, but you have to face up to it. That's right. And then you receive forgiveness. Is there something about forgiving yourself, but you don't sort of carry on as you were. You have to try and change it in some way or mitigate what's made you, what you've done that's made you feel guilty. So say that most monotheistic religions, maybe all religions, but certainly monotheistic religions uh, are based on the idea of nurturing, loving, um, parental 
um, sort of figures, right? If you think about yeah. it, um, we won't call them mothers or fathers and then we get into that whole thing, but some kind of maternal, paternal, nurturing figure that will care for us. And so, yes, it's exactly like like monotheistic religion in that sense that we, we want to look at at ourselves, we want to look at our feelings, we want to look at what we've done or haven't done. That's the only way to get to the other side. Yeah. Mm. And in terms, guilt is often used as um, an excuse not to talk about what's best for children uh, in case uh, there is a mother out there who can't provide what she feels is best and what she knows is best. In society today, it's it's used as a an excuse to ignore things. Right. What what would be your response if people say where well, you're you talk about how important it is to be there the first three years in particular? You shouldn't mention that because particularly in America, where maternity leave is so short, so many people have to go back to work, so we just won't talk about it. What do you think? What could we say in response to that sort of approach? Well, I mean, I think I think we always want to think about what's ideal first. I mean, I think that's as human beings, that's just where we go. Um, we want to give our children the best, do the best for them. Um, we all have good intentions. So, you know, we all think about what's best for our children, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think, yes, there's a sensitivity about what's talk- with, about talking about what's best for children. And, you know, um, what is best for children is if they can have a primary caregiver, um, be it a mother or father, whoever that caregiver is, most of the time it's a mother, but today sometimes it's a father, Um, having a primary caregiver who they rely on to buffer stress, regulate their emotions, and teach them empathy. So that connection is the best that you can offer your child from moment to moment in the first three years. If you can't be there, um, then the next best thing would be to have um, a loving, sensitive, empathic surrogate. And that surrogate might be the non-primary caregiver, um, the other of your spouse, or uh, it might be a family member, it might be a grandmother, it might be a grandfather, it might be um, a, a hired caregiver uh, who is very sensitive and empathic and nurturing. Um, I always say choose sensitivity and empathy over um, organizational sort of um, organizational perfection or um, strict, avoid the strict nannies or the the ones who are officious and organized um, and clean your house well, but pick one that's really going to be emotionally present for your child. So, you know, sort of we go from best, better to good, right? So, but in the same way, it's become politically incorrect to say that breastfeeding is best. And we know that breastfeeding is best for children for so many reasons, Um, but some mothers can't breastfeed. Either physiologically they can't, or they can't because again, they have to work. And that doesn't mean that a baby can't be healthy if they're bottle fed, but we always wanna talk about the ideal first and if we can give that to our children. And then if we can't, what is the next best thing we can give to our children? The thing that I tell parents to avoid if they can is daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, and because really what children benefit from in the first three years is having a unique relationship with a caregiver who sees them alone and uniquely um, and can give them the kind of buffering from stress that I discussed um, and can regulate from moment to moment. If you have um, daycare, you often have multiple children cared for by one caregiver. Um, the 
usually not less than five to one, Mm. five children to one caregivers, sometimes up to eight to one. Mm. In some cultures, even more. In Sweden, it can be um, 12 to one. Um, So imagine if you were that caregiver. Let's be generous and say five to one. If you were a caregiver caring for five children under the age of 18 months or Mm. under the age of a year, how much moment-to-moment buffering and regulation could you do for the, each individual child? Um, and the reality is you can't. And so if you don't have the resources, again, we think best, better, good. If you don't have the resources for a single caregiver, then share a caregiver with another family. Find another family. And two, uh, you'd say the ratio of two to one or even three to one is far better Mm. than four or five or six or seven or eight to one. Um, So share a caregiver and have it be in a home setting where it's much more comforting and less stressful for a baby than an institutional setting. Mm. Yes. And uh, think about in terms of when you are at home with mm-hmm. your baby, it's um, it's not just enough to be co-located and coexisting. Is it, is it, what is it when you're in the house, in the home that you need to be doing? You know, there's no point leaving your work and just being there. Right. Uh, what, what would you see if someone was being sensitive and nurturing? What would it look like? Well, I mean, I have the easiest way to describe it. Interested. If you're really interested in your baby, more interested in your baby than making the beds or doing the dishes. I mean, we do all have to make the beds and do the dishes. And um, I actually find some comfort in folding laundry. (laughs) It's very, it's very mindless. It's got a mindlessness. And something you can achieve. You can actually achieve it as long as you're not interrupted. (laughs) It is. I mean, housework is in a way, some people complain about it. And I think it's it's my, in a way, it's mindless. It's mindful. Let's say mm. it's mindful, mindful yeah. yes. because Focus it's it's it. actually not focusing on anything else. You're sort of it's like meditation. It can mm. be, you know, um, which is I think why mothers can get sort of um, into a rapture about doing housework instead of the baby, because mm. actually being with a baby is much more emotionally demanding. Um, paying attention to another person is much more emotionally demanding. Um, but also more emotionally pleasurable if you give in to it. Um, but yes, so the baby needs you to fe- it needs to feel that you're interested in in him or her over anything else. And interested means, um, you know, again, who's going to be more interested in your own baby? Uh, we say it's quite normal to be bored with someone else's baby, but who's going to be more instinctually interested in your own baby than you? Mm. So when you Pick a family member, for instance, to be your surrogate caregiver. That's far better than picking a paid caregiver because that paid caregiver, no matter how much we call it sort of as if, no matter how much they might attach to your child, that child is still not part of them and is still instinctually not one of their own. And they also have a sense that at some point they'll need to separate from that child and leave that child. Whereas you or your spouse or your mother, um, a grandmother, is going to have a different kind of investment in that child, more interest. If you think about it, the interest in that child is what makes them feel interest in themselves. It makes them, it gives them a sense of self-esteem ultimately. So to have your mother be ultimately more interested in you than anything else um, makes you feel special, mm. um, makes you feel interesting. Mm. So, Is there any, I've never thought of this before, but is there a link between a sense of, or a lack of 
feeling that someone was interested in you when you were little to social media affirmation? I'm just going to throw that out there. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, look, we all want affirmation and we all want reassurance, even even when our mothers and fathers did give us um, a great deal of reassurance and affirmation. So social media is like um, too much sugar, right? It's like, um, in fact, it's, it's sugar because it's like empty calories, because it's mm-hmm. got a quick rush to it, because it feels like we're being affirmed. Um, but it's got a superficial kind of and very um, sort of uh, immediate but not lasting effect on people. So it means that they need more and more and more and more. Um, But yes, certainly addictions to social media, as you can see in some young people, how they can't remove themselves from their phones. And, um, you know, it is, it's again, being hungry. It's being at that dining dining table and not having gotten enough and sitting there and saying, where's the next course? Mm. Yeah. I've heard um, you speak before, obviously, and one of the questions someone asked is, if you weren't there mm-hmm. as much as you hoped you would have been when they were little, is it too late by the time they're teenagers? Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can do at that stage? Well, that's what the next book is about, and the answer is yes, because you can do things. You have two critical windows of brain development. When the brain is um, really has bursts of growth, but also reorganizing. One is zero to three, which is what the first book is about. The second is adolescence. So in adolescence, which is now we have it classified as nine to 25. And we know that now, again, only because of neuroscience, because we can look at the brain and we can see that it still keeps changing and growing till about 25. Mm -hmm. So we say the majority of the growth is over by 25. Doesn't mean that it's not plastic. Our brains are constantly growing and shrinking throughout life. So we say they're always plastic. The brains are always plastic, but but the majority of the growth ends by 25. So between nine and 25, you have another window of critical window of brain development when the brain is reorganizing. And you have another um, opportunity really as a parent to influence things like resilience to stress and emotional regulation. So being around in those years is, um, I want to say, critical in a different way, but, but, but as critical as the early years. And we don't think about that because we think, oh, they seem to be rejecting us teenagers. Uh, pre-adolescents and adolescents seem not to need us, so we can just go off and do our own thing. And sometimes we even do it um, as a response to feeling rejected by them. So we've given them so much and now they seem not to want us. And the normal process of separation is that they have to push us away, like pushing a boat away from a dock with a very strong current, right? You have to give it a shove. (laughs) And sometimes they really kind of shove the dock. The more attached they are to us, the more they have to shove to move away. And if you don't take it personally and you don't feel rejected by it and you don't overreact to it, but you just see it for what it is, which is a developmental milestone for them, that they, for them to learn to be independent, they have to kind of push away from the dock. But they're quite vulnerable, much more vulnerable at that stage, quite similar to the zero to three stage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarities between toddlerhood and adolescence in terms of their vulnerability, in terms of brain development. And so they actually are um, kind of going through a whole kind of another period of, um, you know, um, emotional securing or not. And so your presence then is very, very critical. And is it um, in terms of just being available for when they need you? Is that what's most important? (laughs) Well, the way I like to put it is parents of adolescents are a little bit more like wallpaper. (laughs) 
Um, and that, that parents don't like to hear that. But wallpaper mm. in the sense that you're not always needed, but you're always there. Mm. And so when they do need you, so the way I put it in my book is um, when the door opens and, you know, an adolescent mm. door closes most of the time yeah. and it stays closed most of the time. But when it opens, if you're there when it opens, then you are the person that they talk to about their feelings. You are the person that they share their day with. You are the person that is then able to observe their moods and what's going on. Um, if you're not there when the door opens, it's like jump rope, right? So it only comes around every once in a while. But if you're not there when the door opens, then you missed an opportunity and then you have to wait for the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you can't just go into a teenager's room and bang on the door and say, I'm here now and talk to me <laughs> yeah. because they will have gone through their cycles of being closed then. Mm. So the more you're around, the more likely you'll be there when the door opens. And Mm. that's both a real thing and a metaphor because Mm. the door opening may be walking in from school and having a sad or long face and being there to say, you know, I see you're not doing so well today. Mm. What's going on? Um, And if they go into the room and shut their door, when you do see them, when you come home from work or whenever you've come home, they may be in a completely different state and you may have missed. um, Mm. So the way I think about defenses with teenagers is it's like going to the beach. Uh, Defenses in general are like going to the beach. Remember when you had little kids and you went to the beach, um, they would dig holes. You know, little kids love to dig holes. The beach is endless entertainment, right? (laughs) Because they dig and dig and dig. Mm. And you just sit there and they're digging and digging. Um, Here we we dig to Australia from here. I don't know. That's right. That's right. We say we we dig to China. China. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, but the idea is, you know, you dig and then, but if you come back the next day, to the beach, the hole has filled in. Mm. So if you think about the idea that that's what defenses are, that if you, you know, you dig, but then you leave them, they fill up again and you have to dig again, just like Mm. the hole at the beach. So if you can think of when the door shuts, you might as well say the sand has filled in the hole. Mm. Mm. So, you know, you want to be there as much as possible because you want to be there when there is an openness in them and you can't predict when that's going to be. And you can't force it and you can't do it on your time. You have to do it on their time. I was uh, talking to someone who said that teenagers will um, test you by picking a time when they know you're busy and uh, you're just about to serve the lunch or something crucial to, so that they, you then reject them by saying, oh, I'm busy now, and they think, well, that's what I expected. That has confirmed my opinion of life. <laughs> but, uh, and, and I think that's our view as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, in fact, they can't control it. Okay, I yeah. think, in fact, what happens is they have moments of openness that are out of their control. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of like I get headaches once in a while and migraine headaches and I can't control when I get one. I get mm. one when I get one. They can't control it any more than I can control my migraine headaches. Mm. When when they come, they come. And when they don't come, they don't come. Mm. And so if they happen to come when you're setting the table, that's when they come. And in a way, if your teenager reaches out to you when you're setting the table, what I'm going to encourage you to do is drop everything just like you did when they were toddlers. It isn't moment to moment, but in a way, when they come to you, it is. It's not every moment, but in the moment they need you for emotional regulation, they can't wait. They're like toddlers again. 
Is it? I remember um, my daughter saying when she first started school and she got really good reports, so she'd come home and be awful in the evening. And I said, but you're doing so well at school. She said, I can't be good all day. I have to let That's it right. out in the, right. in the evening. And I, right. I quite often, I like other people's teenagers. Yeah. I, I enjoy youth. But then you talk to their mothers and they say, oh, they're awful. They're awful at home. And uh, I, I have a feeling that, uh, you know, that teenagers have to be at their worst. You have to be the buffer to absorb the worst of them as such so they can then get that out of their system to go and behave well somewhere else is that is that what's going on yeah you're the shock absorbers I don't know is that the way uh, yes, you use yeah, the same thing that. in England yes. so cars have shock absorbers that's what you are you know sometimes I'll say you're the digestive system for children mothers digest strong emotions for children whether they're little children or you know again that conversion idea you know you're you're basically taking very strong emotions you're helping to listen you're helping to be empathic you're helping to interpret you're neutralizing them, you're basically converting them into something else. You know, mm. through that understanding and through that interest and through that empathy, you're converting those feelings, whatever they are, anxiety, depression, anger, sadness, you're converting it back into something that is what we call emotional homeostasis, but basically converting it back into well-being. So would um, you say someone, uh, well, one of the, my cousins who's American was reading a book about self-esteem for mothers of teenagers. <laughs> that would you say that uh, for, for mothers going through this difficult phase to almost externalise it, that what the teenagers are saying to you is not necessarily a reflection of who you are as a person, that if teenagers are really nasty to you, it's something they have to do or... Yeah, I mean, so it isn't self-evident that you take things personally when people scream at you. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if if um, sometimes you deserve it as a parent and sometimes it is exactly what you just described. It is a, a teenager expressing their turbulence, expressing their conflicts, expressing their chaos and and really pleading with you for help to know what to do with these feelings. And so if you take it personally and mm. out of your own emotional insecurity, react to them either angrily or in a retaliatory fashion, it's not about them. It's about something else. It's about something earlier for you. It's about something that didn't happen with your own mother or father. Um, you know, the other thing is teenagers, the difference really with teenagers is that they can get this kind of connection from either their mother or their father or whoever I'll say, just to be kind of fair, whoever the alternative parent is, right? If you're raising a child as a gay couple, whoever the non-primary caregiving parent, both parents become really critical in this function of converting feelings back to well-being. Um, and yeah, you can't take it personally. And I would say that there's a lot of benefit for, and I see a lot of parents of young children, but I also see a lot of parents of teenagers in my practice because it's a time when parents need a lot of support. Think of it like a team building exercise. Sometimes parents will support one another um, in, you know, being able to cope with, you know, so if, if your teenager screams at you, you turn to your other partner or your other spouse or whatever, and you say, oh, this is awful. And they say, yeah, oh, isn't it awful? And <laughs> me too. And, yes. um, and that's supportive. But some people turn to therapy and therapy can be very helpful because it also, other than just resonating with the pain that you're in, it might also help you explore. The one thing your spouse may not be able to do is help you more deeply explore why you're having such an extreme reaction to your teenager. 
Mm. Right. So maybe it's a good time for you being a critical window for you that's being opened up or a door that's being opened up to your past that you may not even realize. Mm. So meaning if you react strongly or harshly to your teenager's aggression, then you may be reacting to something other than your teenager. Yes. Yes. And um, do you mind if I ask you a little bit about anxiety? Mm. Or do you want to keep that for your book? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. I'm happy to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because the it book is... is long. So whatever I give you, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, good. So, yes, yeah. yes, we'll definitely read it. But the anxiety is uh, being diagnosed all over the place yeah. uh, at the moment in teenagers and children getting younger as well. Um, do you think it's being recognized more? Or do you think it's more prevalent? And why do you think that is? So, well, the diagnosis of anxiety, it's certainly diagnosed more, but I mean, I think we used to call anxiety worries. Mm. Um, And I think teenagers always had worries. Um, I think our worries are more intense and now they're diagnosable. So, Mm. um, and they've become symptomatic. Um, In a way, worries were things that could be um, uh, sort of addressed more easily. Anxiety is harder to address because it actually is the physical embodiment of worries. So we say anxiety is um, somatic, meaning we feel it in our bodies. We get panic attacks or we can't sleep or we can't eat or, you know, so so in a way um, our heart races or um, so. So I think the physical embodiment of it means we can no longer live with it. So, yeah, anxiety is a diagnosis has intensified and increased, and it's a problem. It's a problem in adults. It's a problem in teenagers. Um, And, you know, one of the first things we look for with anxiety in adults is, and teenagers, are sleep problems. Mm. So I know in America we have, um, probably 50% of America is on some kind of sleep aid. No, what, 50%? Yeah, but some of the sleep aids are natural, (laughs) right? So, you know, it might be Ambien or uh, melatonin Uh, or, but, you know. Really? Yeah, something they ingest in order to. Really, to sleep. So that's one of the first signs. I'm Mm. guessing in the UK it's not that different. So one of the first signs of anxiety are sleep issues. It's one of the first things we look for. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, as we say in English, Houston, we have a problem Mm. that we have so much anxiety Um, Some of it's environmental and societal, and much of it has to do with the fact that um, we haven't really, um, to get back to very young children, we don't lay down the foundation uh, very early on for them to be able to be resilient to stress later on. So the more stressful the environment, the more we have to focus on the beginnings Mm. to build a very strong foundation to a house that can withstand a lot of intensity of storm yeah so do you think uh, there is that uh, there are almost more reasons to be anxious when you're older these days but you it's not helped by the fact that uh, you may not have had the best beginning either and that if you've had a good beginning are you still as likely to be anxious when you're older there's still as many reasons to be anxious or is it just because people are not getting the beginning that they could have had that there is more anxiety? Well, again, I think um, sort of the natural course of things is that if you build a strong foundation, uh, that that house withstands more mm-hmm. and more intense storms later. So the better the foundation in the beginning, 
the better off you are later on. That doesn't mean you may not experience anxiety, but you may experience it to a lesser degree. I'm trying to think of the metaphor I would use. You know, they tell us in America, we should get our flu shots. And they say, Mm -hmm. well, may not always stop the flu, but it may mitigate the flu or make it less strong or harsh when it does come. So that's the way I would describe it, is that if you do experience worries, maybe they don't progress into anxiety. You know, we all we all have some worries and I don't think worries are pathological Mm. Um, and but anxiety can become pathological. So I think the idea is that um, the stronger the foundation in the beginning, the more we really provide that buffering and that um, emotional regulation for our children in the beginning, the stronger we build that foundation and the better off they'll be in life. It doesn't mean they won't experience I mean, we're all going to experience bad things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the environment is complicated. It's difficult. It's more complicated and difficult than ever before um, for young people. So it's not that they're not going to experience a stressful environment, but that doesn't mean they necessarily um, have a stress response like anxiety. Mm. So is it, uh, I I don't know what the... um, uh, background to it is but everyone says social media that mm-hmm. there's it seems to be that that is a, a cause but then there's been reports here saying if you are someone who's prone towards anxiety you are more likely to depend to depend on social media that they're finding a correlation between people who are already anxious and people depending on social media so there's another cohort of people who are uh, more secure or well attached who can cope with social media and are not being negatively affected by it so it seems to have a um, an intensifying effect is that something that you've you've heard about yeah so um, I mean the idea is that phones in general mm. and connection to technology in general is stressful so it's not just social media so we would say emails Mm. Right. So we know that we're constantly connected to our emails now, you know, and half of the emails that I get are junk emails. So that's even worse. Right. But we're constantly trolling our phone for our emails uh, or our text message. And that's not even social media. Mm. So there's something about not being able to disconnect from the urgency of situations um, that Mm. is causing great stress, really. And if you ever doubt this, just try an experiment, which is. Um, don't look at your phone every, you know, on a day when it matters less, you know, maybe a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, Make a deal with yourself not to look at your phone other than once in the morning and once in the evening and leave your phone alone and your Mm -hmm. computers alone and see how your stress diminishes, see how Mm -hmm. the cortisol goes down. So social media has got an additional thing going for it, which is, um, that it is about um, constantly comparing yourself to other people. Now, that's a very stressful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very stressful to young people. So it is stressful no matter what, um, whether you're an adult or a child. But for a teenager who is in a period of development where you'd say part of um, adolescent development um, is self-consciousness, um, is a kind of social insecurity, 
um, finding their identity and place in the world. So at a time when it's very, when the paint is wet, that's the metaphor <laughs> I'll use, uh, or when the cement is wet, they're, they're constantly trolling for, as you say, reassurance or comparisons to other people. And how, you know, half of the comparisons we know aren't even real, mm. you know, people standing in front of, there's a funny commercial in America of, a fellow uh, on his phone doing social media in front of a, a, a screen with a picture of a beach behind him. <laughs> and, yes. and the person on the other end of the line turns out can't see him. And he said, oh my God, I spent so much money to get this picture of the beach behind me and you can't even see me. So we know that half, yeah. of, half of the comparisons are not even real, but those kinds of mm. comparisons. Um, and that just encourages rather than, Remember I said neutralizing, kind of converting some of these worries into something um, in terms of well-being. It's not converting. It's actually heightening um, teenagers' anxiety about where they stand in relation to other teenagers and are they as pretty, are they as smart, are they as successful. Um, so, yeah, it's even more than just emails and texts. It sort of has that additional kind of um, destructive nature. Mm. Well, just uh, before we finish, just as a sort of overview, yeah. what you've spoken about shows how important mothers are in mm. children's lives, how much they matter in the early years and in the adolescent years and, and all along. But that sort of message meets with a barrier in media and in circles where people say, well, that's unachievable. Um, how are you finding the response to what you're saying in the States? Mm. Well, I don't think it's different than here. I yeah. think people are either very receptive to my message and feel very uh, reassured by it. And, um, you know, particularly mothers who have gotten a lot of flack over the years for maybe they stopped work for a while to raise their young children or took a break or um, they valued being at home with their children and society didn't value that or their spouses didn't value it or their friends made fun of them for it or um, so they feel reassured by the book. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, mothers who are on the kind of um, on the verge of making a decision, sort of um, who are conflicted, maybe ambivalent, also can feel quite reassured by the book. Um, I think it can also trigger um, in mothers who have made decisions that they may or may not be content with um, some sense of guilt and even defensive anger. Um, and the way I think about it is, again, guilt and even defensive anger, as a psychoanalyst, that's what I do all day. So for <laughs> me, these are not um, unfamiliar feelings and they're not necessarily bad feelings. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a very strong reaction to something, it's probably a good sign that it's, it's touched something in you that you probably should look at. So if you have a very strong reaction to any of the things that we're saying today, which are just fundamental Babies need mothers and mothers need babies. Um, if you're having a very strong and angry and defensive reaction to anything we're saying, probably it would be worth looking at those reactions because like guilt, that pain is not something you should have to live with. It's not something your children should have to live with. Um, all around, it's probably causing people pain. So um, yeah, I, I think that it's a hard message, but an important message that um, you know, we have to think of our children first and we can't always give them the best. And there's always 
ways to still provide for them. Um, but maybe it's hard to think about what the next steps are if we can't mourn what we couldn't give to them first. Yes, well, thank you. Well, I think I, I will mention the book again at the end, but the, uh, what I found really encouraging about it is it says, this is what's best, this is the priority. But these are ways to achieve that if you do have to be out at work all day or if you have been at home all day and you've not been engaging, this is how you can engage. It's really practical and it's really non-judgmental and it just gives lots of ideas for you to do the best you can in your circumstances. But one thing we, we want to be able to say, uh, which we're sort of not allowed to say, is this is what the best is right. uh, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of... Uh, discussion of the importance of women as economic un units that we've just found out that work in the UK is at the highest level ever. You know, lots and lots of people are working and this is therefore a good thing, even if they're not being paid enough. Uh, but we, it's really difficult to be able to say, but being at home or being with your children is really valuable mm. because there's just a fear that people will feel bad about it if they if they can't be there. But your book is really helpful for ideas of making the most of the time that you have and perhaps being able to structure your life so you're giving your children what they need whenever you can do that. Yeah, I would caution people to um, a lot of the research that, that, that a lot of women listen to is economic research mm. created by economists. I have the utmost respect for economists, but um, we're not talking about what's best for society um, economically here. We're talking about what's best for children emotionally. Um, and those are maybe competing is what you're saying. And maybe that's the problem is that what we think of as best for society economically may actually be in competition today with what's best for children. And by the way, what's best for mothers, because, you know, maybe a mother who can work part time um, and create some valuable income for her family, but also be as present as possible. Maybe that would be a good compromise in the best situation, um, but that might not be the best economic mm. uh, situation. So, you know, we sometimes have to think about best not being one best, but different bests in different situations. But... Thank you. Thank you very much, Erica. Yeah. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast with Erica Commissar. Just a reminder, her book is called Being There, Why Prioritising Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Uh, I'd be happy to hear from you. I'm on email mothersmatter at outlook.com, on Twitter at Podcast Mothers, and Facebook and Instagram, Mothers Matter Podcast. Um, I'd be really grateful if you could like and share. That'd be brilliant. My name is Claire Pay, and uh, please do get in touch with any ideas for future podcasts. Thank you.